Hey everybody, welcome back to Is That Too Dark? I'm Kaylin. I'm Nikki, and this is a podcast. We're doing it. We're doing it. We do it every Sunday, and sometimes on Wednesdays. But today's a Sunday. Today's Sunday. So, what do you have for us today in our dark news corner? There's a lot going on. The little corner of the darkness of our brains is like how I like to think about it, but sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Welcome back. Welcome back to Nikki interrupting Caitlin for an hour. It's fine. At least it's on recording so people don't think you're gaslighting me. Um, so for dark news, there's a lot going on in the world right a now. A lot going on. And I'm exhausted. I could have gone with dark, dark news or like good news, dark news. Um, so I chose good news, dark news because we are entering the holidays. We don't need... The bad vibes unless we have to. So, And I think there's a lot of stuff, like we were talking about before we recorded, that we do want to touch on. But, like, the one I'm thinking of specifically, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Um, we're pre-recording this because, like, Thanksgiving is coming up. So we won't be with each other for a while. Um, so it is November 20th. So the verdict just came out yesterday. And I'm, like, feeling really raw about it. And I'm not really in a space where I have the words besides anger. Well, and I think that... We have a platform to share the news and share our take on things, but because this is such a fresh verdict and his family is still feeling the effects and the people who died's family is feeling the effects and we're seeing peaceful protests pop up and stuff, I just think that it's the right decision to give it some space. Yeah. And we will talk about it, but like I said, I have nothing but anger right now. And I think that's how a lot of people are feeling as we should be. Um, but please, if you are protesting, stay safe and keep it peaceful. Um, but yeah. So what do you, we, let's talk about good dark news. Cause <laughs> dark news. Um, I'm ready to go really dark apparently. Well, that's fine. So what is your good dark news? We My have good dark news is that Julius Jones was granted clemency on Thursday, November 18th. Um, he has been a death row prisoner since 1991. Um, for, he was accused of, um, armed robbery and, um, a homicide. Um, of a man named Paul Howell. Um, he's in Oklahoma. He's 41. And he was supposed to be executed on Wednesday. But they put a stay on that. The Howell family said, We take comfort that his decision affirmed the guilt of Julius Jones and that he shall not be eligible to apply for or be considered for a commutation, pardon, or parole for the remainder of his life. So I don't know if that's real facts or if they're just running with that life yeah. about the possibility of parole. I think that's what I saw. I think that's what I saw. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that makes no sense. But I know there is an amount of appeals you can have before like your appeal are done. So maybe, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't been following this case like in super depth, but maybe that's one we can cover later. Yeah, definitely. And this comes at... Again, like that controversy, Oklahoma had a six-year moratorium on executions. He is the first person who would have been executed after that moratorium was lifted. Um, but all, there was like a series of flawed lethal injections. Um, they had the wrong drug. They injected the wrong dose. They, you know, it's just, it's flawed. And 
I think I think the whole system's flawed, but for sure. And we have the right to a speedy trial, right? So why don't we have a right to a speedy death or a speedy outcome if because of the appeals? Right, but my point is, if we're doing lethal injection, there's no reason someone should be having a seizure for 45 minutes. Yeah, that's interesting to me. There's no way to... I mean, there is ways to stop seizures. There are drugs for that, so you didn't have those prepared and ready for you. Like, you just... Well, and that's the thing. It's like, are they not supposed to take life-saving measures because this is a life-ending procedure, but then we're looking at cruel and unusual punishment, and it's just very interesting to me that we have this process and we've had this process and there's no oversight or the oversight is always in retrospect. Well, there's no like book that says, okay, if A happens, do B and if B happens, do C and if C happens, do D. Right. Exactly. So, but that is a little bit of happy. Um, Julius Jones will not be sentenced to death. He, as of right now, is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, but I know the media coverage may even help grant him an appeal at a later time. Um, Kim Kardashian has definitely been advocating for him. Um, even Caitlyn Jenner kind of jumped on that, which was interesting because we see both sides of the political spectrum being represented there. But yeah, he's not a free man, but he's not a dead man walking either. So we'll take it. We'll take it for now. Great. All right. Are you ready for my darkness? Yeah, I'm excited, actually. Great. Let's do it. Okay, so today I'm going to tell you the story of Savannah Grayland. This is one of my, I hate saying like favorite cases, but it's a case I think about a lot. And I think right now in the news, we're talking a lot about white privilege. Um, And I am very aware that I have white privilege as a white female in America. Um, And I think the best thing to do with your privilege is to speak, if you can, um, about people that don't have as much privilege. So... November is Native American Heritage Month. Um, in 1990, President George H.W. Bush, the one before Herbert George Walker. W. Bush. Yeah. Is that really his name? Yeah, it's George Herbert Walker. I hate it. <laughs> um, he declared that every November would be Native American Heritage Month. There, Before this, there had been a week every November since 1976 to honor Native Americans, but now having a whole month allows them to have a bigger platform to show their communities, cultures, and traditions. Um, When Bush declared November as being Native American Heritage Month, he also encouraged federal agencies to provide teachings in school about Native American history, Um, maybe accurate Native American history. I'm just curious, and I know this is so not the point, but as an adult not in the public school system anymore, I am realizing just how misinformed and miseducated we were. Yeah. On a lot of things, like with Thanksgiving coming up, you know, like... Well, um, when this goes up, Thanksgiving has passed, but we're recording it before Thanksgiving. Fair so. news, yeah. So, Thanksgiving has passed recently, and it's like, oh, 
the Native Americans brought food to share with the pilgrims. And it was such a fun, beautiful time. Not coerced at all. Yeah. And they all had a great And they're all besties for their besties. And it was just that one day, and then they went back to fighting each other for land that the Native Americans had already had cultivated. Yeah. But sure. I mean, I think as you learn American history after public school, it's really like, wow. So the white people just came and ruined everything. Anyways, so Savannah Greywind was born on August 9th, 1995 to Norberta and Joe Greywind in Belcourt, North Dakota. Um, Savannah and her family is part of the Spirit Lake tribe. She grew up on the reservation. She went to school on the reservation. And after graduating, she got her certificate as a nurse's aide. She ended up moving to Fargo, North Dakota to pursue a career in elder care. Um, and she had been dating Ashton Matheny for the past seven years. So long relationship. They love each other. Um, he was also part of the Spirit Lake tribe. So they probably grew up together. In 2016, she found out that she was pregnant. Her daughter would have been due in September of 2017. Um, they were planning to move in together before their daughter was born. But at the time of her murder, she was living with her parents in an apartment. Savannah, Ashton, and her family were all super excited about the baby's arrival. She was very close to her family, and they were always communicating with each other. I think that's one thing you'll hear throughout this um, whole episode is that she was in constant communication. I mean, this was the time of the iPhone. She was constantly either posting on social media or talking to Ashton or talking to her family. She was very close to her family, and her family was very excited for the baby. Um, They were very close to Ashton. Like, it was all happy. Happy, happy, joy, joy. So this would all change. Um, on August 19th, 2017, Savannah texted her mom that she was going to the upstairs neighbor's apartment to help her with the dress. Um, so basically the neighbor was like, hey, I'll pay you $20 to try on a dress so she could hem it. And Savannah, very pregnant, was like, sure, why not? Um, I don't think they were super close to the neighbor, but I, you know, apartments, you do say hello, goodbye, whatever that may be with your neighbors. Um, so... The neighbor she went to go help was named Brooke Cruz. Savannah sent the text to her mom around 1 p.m. Um, I'm sure she probably thought this would be an hour or two max because she did have plans to drive her brother somewhere that same afternoon. So she had a timeline of things she had to do for that day. Around 2.30, no one had heard from Savannah, and her brother needed a ride. Like That was the plan. So her mom was like, go get her. She's upstairs. She can finish it later. Her brother went to Brooke's apartment, but no one answered the door. But he said he could hear a sewing machine, so he just thought he was being ignored, basically. Her parents found that this was kind of strange. Um, so her dad went upstairs and knocked on the door again. This time, Brooke did answer and said they were still working on hemming the dress, that this was just taking a little while longer than it should have. Um, Savannah's family was not super concerned about it. Um, I, you know, cool, sounds good. It only been like an hour and a half. Um... So someone else took her brother to where he needed to go. But a few more hours went by and Savannah still was not home and no one had heard anything. No one had gotten a text, a call, anything from her. To hem a dress, even if it's like an elaborate dress, an hour and a half is plenty of time to pin it or, you know. Well, and remember, she's at this point very very pregnant. How long do you want to stand on your feet to hem a dress, you know? Right. Okay. So suspicious, but okay. So around, but again, no one's mind is going to jump to that conclusion of like something's wrong. So around 4.30, Savannah's mother was at this point pretty concerned um, because again, no one 
had gotten texts from her, calls from her, anything. So, I mean, maybe not concerned if she was getting texts, but remember, Savannah's always on her phone and she's not been on her phone for a solid three hours. Um, so Savannah's mom went upstairs and Brooke answered the door and said, oh, she already left. Her mom was like, this is sketchy because her car was still parked in the apartment complex and she's, where's she going to be walking around at eight months pregnant? You know? Um, so she was like, okay, still going to give her the benefit of the doubt. So she texted Ashton and he was like, I have not heard anything from Savannah for hours. So now we know she's not with her boyfriend and her car's still there. So after Ashton confirmed that she had not seen, he had not seen her, um, Savannah's mom called the police. The police responded pretty quickly and did a search for Savannah around her apartment complex, but found nothing. The police then went up to Brooke's apartment, searched the apartment, found nothing and left. That was my next question was like, if they, if they did get like a warrant or anything, but no warrant. I think she actually just let them voluntarily search Mm -hmm. the apartment. Um, so they, I think went, looked around some more and then went back to Brooke's apartment for a second search and again found nothing. So a few days go by and no one had heard from Savannah. The police actually continued to search for Savannah, um, but with no luck. Like I said, there's no trace of anything. No one's using her bank cards. No one's on her phone. Her car hasn't moved. There's no, no one is finding anything. This is basically cold from the second we stopped hearing from her. Did they search her car? I don't know that. But she wasn't in her car, and I think her car was there. So my guess is yes, but probably found nothing because her car had not been moved. Um, So on August 24th, with no leads, the police decided to search the upstairs apartment for a third time. Um, So this time they did find something. They found a baby, a newborn baby. The baby was alive and appeared to be healthy, um, but the baby was immediately taken to the hospital. So everyone's like, this baby is newborn and Savannah's eight months pregnant and Savannah's missing. Is this baby Savannah's baby? Of course, Brooke says no. Um, DNA test is going to take a few weeks to come back, but the baby remains in the hospital for this time. She's not given to Brooke. I don't think she's also either given to Savannah's family. But a few weeks later, DNA tests using Ashton's DNA, confirmed that he's the father of the baby. So this is Savannah and Ashton's daughter. Um, and she was immediately reunited with Ashton and Savannah's family. However, Brooke Cruz and her boyfriend, William Hohen, um, yes, I haven't mentioned him yet. We'll talk about him, though. They were immediately arrested because it was very assumed that the baby was Savannah. So even though the DNA testing took three weeks, they didn't wait three weeks to arrest those two. Interesting how making an arrest, even under probable cause or suspicion, benefits people instead of letting them know that they're about to be arrested if anything happens. Anyway. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> on August 27th, two kayakers found a body on the Red River. Within hours of the discovery, the body was identified as Savannah Greywind. So let's talk about Brooke and William. Um, at the time of their arrests, Brooke was 38 and William was 32. Brooke had four children from previous relationships. And when news broke about the crime, her daughter's father, so one of her daughter's father, um, said he was shocked to hear she would even want another child since she was never involved in her daughter's life. Um, William also had two children that he had no contact with. So everyone's kind of confused about why... Because at this point, it's looking like she murdered Savannah for the baby because the baby's very alive and well. Um, so everyone's like, we're confused here. You guys don't even like the children you have that are biologically yours. 
So, um, in 2011, William was actually charged with child abuse and pled guilty to those charges. So William not only does not have contact with his children, he's also a shitty dad because he's physically abusive. But Brooke and William met and began dating in 2014, and their relationship was toxic from the start. They have had the police call on them multiple times for domestic violence claims, and at one point, there was a no-contact order put in place. They broke that no-contact order pretty quickly, um, and William went back to jail for that. For breaking the no-contact order? Uh, It was against Brooke? or I'm sorry. It was like they they can't contact each other. No contact from both parties because of domestic abuse calls multiple times gotcha. um but they broke that like right away they got caught william went back to jail gotcha because i think he was the one to that, break the no yeah gotcha now i'm following Sorry. or maybe he took the blame who cares they're both losers um so during their amazing love affair they used drugs and alcohol a lot which fueled their arguments despite the relationship brooke wanted to stay with william together forever it's meant to be um but William started to show signs that he was done with this relationship. He was going to leave. So what do you do when someone's going to leave you? William, Don't I'm, ask me. I'm not mentally healthy. <laughs> William, I'm pregnant. Oh. So she tells William that she's pregnant. And according to William, he was so excited about having a baby with Brooke. Now, why do they want more kids? And they don't seem to like each other. And why they're excited is so beyond me. But... Your face right now is just... I'm just angry. Like, I... It is so hard for some people to have children, and it pisses me off more than almost anything. I won't say more than anything, but when people who have kids just all willy-nilly and don't treat them right, and then use that as, like, a relationship fuel, right? Like, we have a baby together. Everything's fine. Stay with me. I'm carrying your child. Are we seeing the divorce rate in America? truly shows that you don't have to stay together if you have a baby right well and it's i don't know that's like a passion of mine like women who can't get pregnant have to watch these women who are trash monsters with children that they just damage the children Mm -hmm. right exactly yeah so um you know a few months go by we're so excited we're having a baby i think william started to wonder Is Brooke pregnant? Because a pregnancy, I think, is something you can lie about for maybe four to five months. Maybe. Maybe. Because first babies, people don't start showing till later. But it's a bad lie to have because eventually you either have to say the baby, there was a miscarriage, or which is awful to lie about, or you have to fess up and be like, oh, I lied the whole time. Which is also just awful either way. But. Yeah. So, um. William confronted her. He's like, hey, Brooke, are you pregnant? And she was like, no. And according to Brooke, um, William was like, that's great that you're not pregnant, but I still want a baby. And she uses a word she still needed to produce a baby. So, but William has said, like, I, I never said that. But Brooke says that he said that. Again, he said, she said, I hate those cases. Yeah, and both and they're both losers and they both suck. So who do I want to believe? Neither, really. So now that we have background on them, let's get into the trials because they were obviously in charge. Um, Brooke Cruz confessed to cutting Savannah's baby out of her and was very open about describing the crime. So trigger warning if these kind of things bother you, fast forward or stop listening at this point. So when Savannah arrived at Brooke's apartment, she led her inside and pretty much attacked her from the get-go. Brooke 
brought her into the bathroom and Savannah began to struggle. Brooke hit her head and she was knocked unconscious. Once she was unconscious, she began to give her a C-section with a carpenter's knife. It is suspected that Savannah would have woken up during the C-section, um, but quickly passed out again due to the pain. Because remember, there's no painkillers in this. And the only reason she was unconscious is because she hit her head. So it was suspected that Savannah most likely survived the C-section, but died due to blood loss. A few hours later, William arrives home and sees this awful scene. During William's trial, Brooke testified that she told William that she was unsure if Savannah was actually dead. So William tied a rope around Savannah's neck and strangled her and then said, well, she's dead now. William adamantly denies this claim and says that Savannah was already dead when he arrived home and that Brooke had killed her by tying a rope around her neck and strangling her on her own. So another, she said, he said, Brooke's cellmate in prison also said that Brooke told her she killed Savannah on her own. But again, how much are we believing the cellmate? Um, I just, I'm sure you're going to go into the forensic evidence and stuff too, but like, is there any reason to believe one way or the other at this point? Like William being stronger than Brooke or anything of that sort? I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, they suspected she survived the C-section and the cause of death of blood loss, but maybe either of them thought, oh, maybe she's not dead and strangled her. Um, But they do know that her cause of death is blood loss. Not um, strangulation. Not strangulation, I believe. Isn't a ton on this case, Um, but they do know that she, you know, blood loss would have been the main cause of death. Would be my guess because you would bleed out pretty quickly on a C-section that you just use a carpenter's knife for. But... Um, when Brooke showed the baby to William, she said that they were now family and it may be kind of unclear if William assisted in killing Savannah, but he has admitted to helping Brooke dispose of Savannah's body. So either way, William sucks and deserves to go to jail and he's a piece of shit. Um, William claims he had no idea about Brooke's plan to steal Savannah's baby and Brooke has said she never explicitly told William about her plan. But remember, he said to produce a baby. So how else are we supposed to get the baby? Go have sex with literally anybody. And don't have a fucking baby. Or don't have a baby. But also, if he's like, we'll get one one way or the other, go go get pregnant. <laughs> like, don't. You can get pregnant when you have four children. Right. You're 38. You're getting older, but. You can clearly do this. Yeah. Anyway. So Brooke pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. Um, Conspiracy conspiracy to commit kidnapping and providing false information to law enforcement. She was found guilty on all three charges and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Upon her sentencing, she said, I am guilty. I deserve every year I get. So at least she has some awareness, but have fun in jail. You fucking bitch. Um, William was charged with conspiracy to get to commit kidnapping, which he pled guilty to and was sentenced to life in prison. He appealed his sentence in 2019 and was re-sentenced to 20 years in prison. I think he, um, because his only charge was that conspiracy to commit kidnapping, they sentenced him lower to 20 years in prison. Even though he helped dispose of the body and is culpable in the case. And we don't know if he strangled her or not. Great. Yeah. So during the trial and sentencing, though, Savannah's five-month-old baby, Hazley Joe, was in the front row on her dad's lap watching justice be served, in my opinion, for her mom. So she's very healthy. Um, She's now a happy little girl who lives with her dad and is extremely close to Savannah's family. 
um, which I think is great because she's never going to get to know her mom, but she will get to know her mom's family. Um, and I know they will teach her about how great her mom is and tell her stories about how awesome her mom is. So it seems like they're all very still close. How devastating for Ashton to lose his partner that he'd been with for that long. And they're about to have a baby. That's like, should be the most exciting time in your life. Well, and the trauma of, cause they didn't know the baby was alive for all those days, days and like three searches. And what was the baby? How was the baby living for the three days? Right. And how, like, I just, (sighs) yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about how the media reacted to this and a little bit about, um, Native American women in particular, and how the media portrays them. Um, I know this is a big topic of conversation right now in the world, and I think it's important that we talk about it. So Savannah's family, when she went missing, was super active in the media. They would interview with pretty much anyone. They handed out flyers. They posted all over social media, and they would contact news stations um, to get the word out. They kept her face in the media and at the forefront of the public's mind until she was found. Good for them. It's unlikely that that happens very frequently mm-hmm. with their um, heritage and everything. And good for the media for um, allowing that time for her. So in 2017, North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp introduced Savannah's Act, which requires the Department of Justice to strengthen training, coordination, data collection, and other guidelines related to cases of murdered or missing Native Americans. It aims to address the alarming number of cases involving Native women, and it was passed into law in 2020. So one thing, and they weren't on the reservation, so it was a little bit easier, but one thing that is a common occurrence is that the reservation has their own police, and then there is the state police and the city police and all that police. So when things happen on the reservation, the police are less likely to step in. Like I said, luckily they weren't on the reservation, so the police stepped in very quickly, Um, but it's one of those things where who has control over what, and I know there is a lot of stuff going on to hopefully help that. So I think it's so important to cover Savannah's case because violent crimes against indigenous women are very common in the United States and the media very rarely covers these cases. According to the Indian Law Resource Center, more than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence and more than one in two have experienced sexual violence. Alaska Native women continue to suffer the highest rate of forcible sexual assault and have reported rates of domestic violence up to 10 times higher than in the rest of the United States. Though limited data is available, the number of missing and murdered American Indian and Alaska Native women and the lack of a diligent and adequate federal response is extremely alarming to Indigenous women, tribal governments, and communities. On some reservations, Indigenous women are murdered at more than 10 times the national average. Now, the data, I think, is super skewed because of that reservation police, state police, local police type of thing. I mean, even in normal law in America, the LAPD and the Sacramento PD don't communicate even if... I mean, that's, like, why the Golden State Killers took four fucking ever. Right. Well, even, I mean, even in local jurisdictions, we have Elk Grove PD, South PD, and... I used to, like, where I used to live was the dividing line between the counties. Yeah. So if there was ever an emergency at my apartment and I called 911, they're like, oh, sorry, you need the other police department. Yeah. I would get Like, why does it matter? It's like, can someone just respond because someone's, like, literally in danger right now? Yeah. So, um, they're 
this obviously shows that there is a crisis happening in the United States. I mean, how many more indigenous women need to be abused and murdered before anything happens? And it's likely that the numbers are even higher, like I said, but that women either are not reporting the crimes, are afraid to report the crimes, or they're reporting it and no data is being taken for it. Um, if you're wondering why indigenous women would not want to report their abuser or rapist, while very few women who have reported their abuse to the police have seen justice, the criminal justice system in the United States has made it extremely difficult for indigenous women to press charges against their abusers. The Indian Law Resources Center states, for more than 35 years, United States law has stripped Indian nations of all criminal authority over non-Indians. As a result, until recent changes in the law, Indian nations were unable to prosecute non-Indians who reportedly commit the vast majority, 96% of sexual violence against Native women. The Census Bureau reports that non-Indians now comprise 76% of the population on tribal lands and 68% of the population in Alaska Native villages. Many Native women have married non-Indians. However, it is Unacceptable that a non-Indian who chooses to marry Native women lives on her reservation and commits acts of domestic violence against her cannot be criminally prosecuted by an Indian nation and more often than not will never be prosecuted by any government, end quote. So basically what that's saying is that if a non-Native woman marries a non-Native man, or sorry, a Native woman marries a non-Native man or a Native man marries a non-Native woman, if there is any type of abuse, violence, sexual assault, anything, murder, they cannot be tried on reservation land. So it is up to the abuse victim to go and report it to a foreign government, basically. You know, I mean, obviously they're very well equipped and they don't live like in the, it's not like Amish land. Like they know what's going on, but you can't report it to people you're comfortable with. And the reservation can try these people and everything like a normal jurisdiction, but they have to go somewhere else and report it to a different jurisdiction jurisdiction kind of like how you were talking about like oh i'm going to this person i'm going to this person and someone who has had a very traumatic experience does not want to have to relive this story over and over and over and these people aren't sorry i know you want to say something but these people aren't stupid like they know how they're portrayed in the media so they go and report that their non-native husband or non-native wife abuses them and how is that going to be portrayed once that gets let out exactly yeah it's just going to feed the flame um What I was going to say was even people who have privilege and access to police officers that look like them or are in their jurisdiction, the trauma of having to report a crime that has happened to you is enough of a deterrent in a lot of cases where these things go unreported anyway. So just like you said, imagining having to leave the reservation where the police force more than likely looks like the person reporting. And more than likely you know them. And knows, you know, the spirituality and the heritage and the cultural background that you're coming from can't do anything for you by law. And then having to go to a white police officer who maybe, or maybe not white, but in my head, a white police officer that looks like the white man that just got done abusing you or... And I'm not trying to, like, say white men are bad or white anything are bad, but to have to go to someone who looks like your abuser or potentially Mm -hmm. share similarities in some way to your abuser. Or if it's a small town, know some. Exactly. It's like, how far is this actually going to get taken? Am I going to get taken seriously? Am I going to be written off? Am I going to be gaslit? Are all of these things going to play into this? And then my abuser is going to know that I reported them and it's going to get worse. Well, and remember... 
women know that when they go to trial, the defense is going to drag them through the fucking mud. Absolutely. It's always the woman's fault for the most part. Like, why didn't you do um, Why did you And, you know, whatever. To keep going off of this, um, the Indian Law Resource Center posted that between 2005 and 2009, U.S. attorneys declined to prosecute 67% of Indian country matters referred to them involving sexual abuse and related matters. So not only are they fearful of talking to people, they're seeing that their sister's case, their cousin's case, all these people's cases are getting declined to be prosecuted. Because there's not enough evidence, or is it just... I'm not super sure on that. Um, I'm sure they come up with some reason. Probably evidence is what they'll say, but who knows what the truth is there. So the Indian Law Resource Center is working very hard to end the violence against indigenous women and reform state and federal laws to protect these women. The center has a project called Safe Women, Strong Nations, which according to their website, partners with Native women's organizations and Indian and Alaska Native nations to end violence against Native women and girls. Our project raises awareness to gain strong federal action to end violence against Native women, provides legal advice to to national Native women organizations and Indian nations on ways to restore tribal criminal authority and to preserve tribal civil authority, and it helps Indian nations increase their capacity to prevent violence and punish offenders on their lands, end quote. So I highly recommend you check out IndianLaw.org. Both Savannah's Act and laws and the Indian Law Resource Center are working to reform um, and will these will help protect indigenous women against violence, but the public can also help as well. So why we're doing this is to talk about it and to bring awareness and just visit the website and see what amazing things they're doing. Educate yourself on these issues. If you're not already, I think it's so important because like we were talking about earlier as a white person, I have so much privilege that people don't have. You have so much privilege that people don't have. And even though we have a small audience to be able to talk about it and share our views, but also share the statistics, you know, like, yes, our views are in line with this, but because the statistics don't lie about this kind of stuff. Um, so like I was saying, the media rarely covers these cases. Um, so social media is where people really speak out about it. If you notice, um, a lot of people speak out on social media about this, which is great because I want to share a few more things. Um, according to the national crime information center, there's an estimated 1500 native American and Alaskan Native people missing. There are an additional 2,700 murdered due to homicide. Many of these cases are left unsolved due to lack of resources, funding, and investigations. But there is hope for these cases to be solved one day in the near future. In April of 2021, Deb Holland, Secretary of Interior, announced that the Bureau of Indian Affairs Offices of Justice Services would be forming a missing and murdered unit. This unit will assist in working on missing and murdered indigenous women cases and provide leadership to different departments of these cases that will provide additional resources nationwide and will hopefully solve many cases. And I can almost guarantee this is due to people getting loud about these cases and people realizing, wait a minute, something's fucking wrong here. Something's not adding up. And actually, I don't know if you're listening to Payne Lindsay's newest Up and Vanish season is about a native woman living on the reservation are you listening to it? No, I'm not, but I'm going to. It's he list. listens, or he listens. He um, is very vocal about all this, but he's also interviewing a lot of Native women, and so many they are like, oh, yeah, my cousin's missing, too. Oh, yeah, my brother's missing, too. And it's like, 
why do we, they know so many people that are missing and the police are doing nothing? And they talk about this in a very real and honest way while they're also trying to find Ashley. Um, so if you are interested after this episode, please go check out. I mean, let me give him promo. Come on. But um, <laughs> if you aren't listening to it, go and check it out. Um, but before we end, I do want to say to research, I read an article on TwinCities.com by Dave Olson. Um, I read an article on Oxygen.com by Daniel Agato. Um, I read an article from AP News by Dave Kolplak and also, obviously, Wikipedia. And I went on IndiaLaw.org for all of that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I want to further validate what you said before we sign off about getting loud and getting results. Yeah. Even to call back to the beginning of the episode, right? Julius Jones got traction because people had a platform and they used it. So if you have privilege of any kind, I think it is important to share and talk about things that can be uncomfortable to discuss. Hmm. Um, Even saying like, oh, I can't speak on that because I'm white. I can't speak on that because I'm, you know, whatever. I haven't lived that experience. But if you have knowledge or you have curiosity even, other people are asking those same questions. And as long as you're coming from a place of learning and advocacy versus voyeurism and, you know, I don't want to say like morbid curiosity, but if you're trying to learn and you're trying to educate, it's absolutely okay to use your voice. And I think it's important to, um, because yeah, like you said, like a lot of the times we talk about this, like I'm scared to do this case because I am a white woman. Um, I'm scared to do this case because of this or whatever that may be. But coming at it in a respectful way and asking the questions in a respectful way is where that difference is. Um, So remembering that if you have questions, ask people that may know the answers, but ask about it in a respectful way where you want to learn. And like even researching this case, like I learned so much about Native American culture. Um, And I hope to continue to learn more about it. And I think it's just very important that you continue to grow as a human being. Um, But if you notice, we don't even have 100 followers on Instagram. Add is that too dark if you want to follow. But we do still post those kind of things and updates and um, with, you know, who's a jury or jury coming to a conclusion and trial ending. I posted a lot about it yesterday. Um, I think it's just important, even if you only have a few followers, that might be someone who's seeing it that didn't know this information or something new. But that, I think, is where we leave you today. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving or long weekend or whatever you do with your life. Um, Remember to educate yourself. Remember not to be a fucking racist. And remember to use the privilege that you may have. And don't perform C-sections in your apartment. Please, if you want to have a baby, do it on your own. Yeah, don't. Especially not with a carpenter's knife, please. I'm still vomiting in my head over that yeah it's pretty dark there um but follow us on instagram at is that too dark you can check us out on spotify itunes stitcher Castbox, google really anywhere for the most part that you get podcasts but we will see you all next week for another new episode bye bye